I just want to um, pray an unzooming prayer, if that's all right. Um, I'm very conscious, and especially in my line of work, I spent all my week on conference calls, and now I'm on Zoom in the evenings and at the weekend, and frankly, it can get a bit flat. So I feel like it's a, a good time to just pray for us as a church. So if you can just uh, stay in an attitude of prayer, I want to pray over us. Father God, we thank you for the technology that has allowed us to continue to connect during this difficult season of life, Father. Don't know where we'd be without it, Father, but Lord, it isn't the same as being together. We know that, Lord God. But I just pray right now there'll be a releasing of a kind of sense of flatness that can come through yet another uh, Zoom call. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we will feel completely and utterly connected today. It will be as close to being together in physical presence as we could. We are a privileged people that get to meet in buildings without trouble trouble but many parts of the world that is just something they cannot do father god so i just pray we have the same attitude and spirit which is good to gather wherever we are separated or together because we're looking to you we're, we're trying to worship you we're trying to understand and pressing closer to you so i just pray for those that have perhaps now got their phone in their hand and are not really connected as sue said when they're worshiping i pray that there is a sense of your presence amongst us all wherever we are right now and we can really focus in on what you want to say and i pray you say that through uh, this preach that I bring this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hopefully you're with me. Um, so this is the last of, uh, but one, as it were, the penultimate, I think is the right word here, of our series, One True God. I'm going to bring in the, bring in the last two characteristics of God, and then next week we're going to wrap it up, which is, again, why we want to make sure we're ready for communion next week, because that'll be part of what we're doing. Um, so I'm really pleased to be preaching again, to be honest with you. It feels like a bit of a gap. I think it's just the way the, the rotor worked. But it feels like ages since I've preached um, for you. But um, it's probably not a bad thing that we've left these last two till last because I think these are going to take some concentration, which is why I wanted to pray, like, you know, stay with me, guys. Let's not just get distracted, as it's so easy to do in this kind of virtual setup, because I'm going to be preaching on wisdom and truth. And I've uh, subtitled it Pilot and Pilot. I hope that will become clear as we go along. So let me, let me start with wisdom. Um, and right off the bat, I want to move us away from human and earthly ideas of wisdom. I want us to get straight into a proper definition when we attribute wisdom to God. Okay, because we can use this term very easily. And I hope and my plan is that you will see a stark difference between the wisdom of man, earthly wisdom, as you might call, see me refer to it several times, and the wisdom of God. You know, we typically think of wisdom as something that you acquire over time. Hence the term like wise old owl, which is interesting. I looked that up, by the way. I'm fascinated by expressions we use and where do they come from. And wise old owl, of course, the general feeling is, well, owls look wise for some reason. Don't know why an owl looks wise. It's got big eyes. It actually links to a Greek god called Athena, who also was attributed to wisdom and was depicted by an owl. So it's more than just cute cartoons. There's something in that. That, that sort of determines what wisdom is. We've got this idea that it's linked, linked somehow to age as well. And um, we use the term wisdom beyond their years, you know, because it implies that, oh, they're, they're ahead of themselves in terms of time. And so we link wisdom to like lifespan. We link it to applied learning over your life. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to, to grow wiser in human terms over the years. But it is a quite limited definition, and that's because we're quite limited. Um, and I think it's dangerous, and I think that's been true throughout this series. We've trod trotted a, a tight line sometimes of 
taking things that are our understanding and then attributing them to God and just saying God's a bigger version of our definition of what it is to be wise or true, as you'll hear later. So we take what we understand and we say, well, just God's just a really, really, really wise person. And that doesn't really fit. That doesn't really work when we talk about the godly definition of wisdom. And so we need to shift away from that. Um, now, several times we've referred to use the term all in this series, and sometimes you hear the word omni, which, is, which essentially translates to all, so omnipresence, all-present, omnipotent, all-powerful. Um, and this is another all. Now, there isn't a word like omni-wise, doesn't exist, but the point is that this is, again, that God is all-wise. He is all-wise. So he's perfectly and infinitely wise. Now, I'm not going to debate that. Um, you could try if you want to, but I want to just put that out there, that God is infinitely wise, and we're going to explore that a bit more. God is not acquiring wisdom like we do. God is wise already. He's flawless and he's infinitely wise. He's not acquiring wisdom. We, we need to realize that because we need to know that he's perfect in his ways because he's infinitely wise. You may not agree with me. You may not agree that he's perfectly wise because we misunderstand godly wisdom and what it means to be all wise. We do need a better definition and thankfully, A.W. Tozer um, did give us a good definition of what this actually means. Let me bring it up to you on the screen. Here we go. This is A.W. Tozer. He said, it is the skill to achieve the most perfect ends by the most perfect means. Wisdom is the ability to see the end from the beginning. To see, to see means everything in proper relation and in full focus. It is to judge in view of the final and ultimate ends and work towards those ends with perfect precision. Now, that's not exactly succinct. It's not going to trip off your tongue, but we are talking about a characteristic of God here. And so for that reason, it is quite short in truth. It's quite condensed. Um, so I think it's a really good definition if we can grip it. Uh, what Toza's doing there in his book um, is he's challenging our notion of wisdom. He's making sure that we know God's wisdom is complete. And so when God starts something, he knows despite whatever may happen along the way, he sees the end state that he intends to reach and he will get us there. He will make it there. In Revelation 1.8, it says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He sees all of that is going to play out. He understands the end of everything. He is the beginning of everything. He's not bound like we are. So therefore, he can see and then work towards that end that he intends. It's like the most complex game of chess imaginable, where the player, God in our case, knows no matter what the opponent does, he, God, will win. He sees the end. He knows he has a flawless strategy to win. The opponent is incapable of surprise. Nothing can thwart the plan. So he executes it. God executes it. Our player executes it without flinching. No apology. No regret. He knows the plan will work. Even if partway through, the opponent may seem to have the upper hand, he knows 
that nothing, that's nothing more than a short momentary false dawn. So he executes without flinching, without apology or regret. Ultimately, our player's every move is perfect in response to the opponent and the victory is assured. Amen and hallelujah. Amen and hallelujah. This is how wisdom, the wisdom of God has to be viewed, brothers and sisters. This is how we must view it. Not in the moment, not in the present moment. We need to experience the eternal plan that he is executing, the perfect plan that he is executing. God invites us into all that. He breathes it into us. Blessed assurance, how can it be? That's what that should mean to us. That it may not, I think the song that, that we sung is a, is a favorite of my, my Explore group, I know. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It's that realization that in the middle of all this, God is still at work. That he will reach the end he intends to. So he invites us into that. That's where peace comes from. That realization that it's not what's going on right now. God has a plan and he is working it through because he is all wise. The knowledge, the wisdom, the, trans, trans, the, the peace that transcends human understanding to me means that. It's that doesn't seem to be the way that it would be if I was to run my day, but I believe God is in control and he's working towards a plan because he sees the end of this phase, this moment. He sees the end of this eternity, if there is such a thing, but he sees the end of this world. At least he knows exactly what's going on. We may do stupid things along the way. I will do stupid things along the way and I've got an enemy plotting against God's plans. But the father is not phased, nor is he distressed. Not phased, nor distressed. And if we then marry up, this is exciting stuff for me, guys. If we marry up God's infinite wisdom with another belief that we hold, that he is good. We sing it, good, good father. We sing, you are good, you are good. Oh, you are good. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. We sing that he is good. When we marry those two things together into his wisdom, we can read things like Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life because he is good. So when we marry up God's wisdom with God's goodness and the fact that he's working perfectly towards the plan, we should start to get it, shouldn't we? We should start to understand that God's plan is for the longest time and for the highest good. No matter what we're going through, God's plan is good. We love that scripture about the, I know the plans God has for you, plans to prosper you. We love that scripture. It's the most Google scripture of all now. It took over from John 3.16 some time ago. We love that. The reality, the core of that is that God's plan is ultimately good. We sometimes use that phrase to talk about something very short term. Often God is saying, trust me. That scripture was written to people who waited many years to be set free of their slavery. It's that trusting that God will ultimately, ultimately do the thing that is of most benefit to us and he's doing it even in the current situation. I think there are three levels to this, in my view. There is cosmically, let me just bring that up. Cosmically. God is good on a cosmic level, as in the heavens and the earth that he created. In Proverbs, it says this, the Lord by wisdom. So he knew what he was doing. 
And he knows the, the full story over time. Knew what he was doing. By wisdom, he founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Jeremiah 10, 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. The state of everything, the entirety of what's going on on this planet, politically, financially, ecologically, is not causing God to come up with some plan B. It's not causing him to come up with some plan B because he doesn't need one. He doesn't need one. He is all wise. He knows what he's doing. Messy though it might be and feel, especially in this season, God has a plan and it's good. Cosmically, for, for all humanity, for us as a race, Romans 16, 25 to 27, in what's called a doxology, an expression of worship, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. God has a plan. The prophets foretold it. Christ reveals it. God did not look down on us one day and, and turn to Jesus and say, what are they doing? You're going to have to rush down there. I know you had other plans. I'm sorry if this sounds sacrilegious, but you know what I'm saying. You better get down there and sort them out. I didn't, didn't see this coming. God knew. God knew, and he knew the perfect moment in our history. You understand your Old Testament. If you look at it, it leads you to a point when Christ comes. Without the Old Testament, you don't see what God allowed to happen to reach a point when it was the right moment, the perfect moment in history, because it's Christmas coming, yeah? When Jesus steps into our humanity and reveals in his life God's plan. That's what's going on. And then finally, personally, going right into us personally, God is not thrown out by us. He's not rethinking his plan for us when we reject him, when we when we choose not to follow him, when we go cold on him, or backslide as it's sometimes called. He doesn't hash up some new strategy to try and get us back again because he's sticking with his plan because it's a perfect plan. And it's us who need to adjust and not him. His grace is sufficient for all of those who truly pursue him. Romans 8.28 on the screen there says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. God is infinitely wise, infinitely good, and nothing, no matter how difficult it may be to swallow at times, is wrong with his plan, because he sees the end of the journey, and with precision, he's walking us towards it. I, I used to fly a lot, a lot. It's funny, I haven't flown out of the country since April. I, anyone who knows me knows that I spent most of my time in the air flying to various countries in the world, often quite a long way away. Part of my business and what I did as a, as a trainer was to, to, to go to see, see leadership teams all over the world, and they would fly me out to meet them for a day and spend a day with them and hopefully benefit them. I'm not kidding you. I met Marianne Nell once in Australia, in Perth, because she was there at the same time as me. 
Australia. Literally met up with her and two of her friends for fish and chips, I think it was, in Australia. That, that flying was big, a big part of my life. But of course, in traveling and flying so much, I've experienced some scary moments along the way uh, in planes. I have been on a plane that, that banked so steeply as it turned into Munich Airport. Pilot, they told us afterwards, was going through training. This is a big plane, a full-size, you know, jet plane. Turned sideways, but he's not going fast enough. So as it turned, you heard the engines groan and stop, and the plane just started falling down sideways. It was one of the most harrowing moments. Everyone on the plane was screaming. Um, we were high up, fortunately, <laughs> and eventually you heard the engines kick in and the plane right itself. And <laughs> I won't tell you what some of the language was like in that. Uh, but there was a lot of people praying at that moment. There's an interesting story I'll tell you another day. Even the lady next to me said, sweet Lord Jesus, and cried out. I think there's something in there. Anyway, uh, I've also been on uh, one that, uh, as it flew into Heathrow Airport, as we're flying in, in a hurricane, by the way, it just as it was about to land, the whole plane tips up, and I look, and I'm in the middle seat, look out, I see the runway and the tip of the wing of the plane that looked like it was meters apart as the plane kicked up just as it was about to land. It slammed into the runway and they shut the airport. We were the last plane in with good reasons to. But the one we're all aware of, the one we kind of generally dread the most is turbulence, yeah? Because it's so common. You may not have had those extreme examples, but we all dread turbulence. Of many occasions when I've literally been levitated off my seat by turbulence, hanging on to the grips, trying to hold myself down, watching food and bags fall out of things because turbulence is just very common. And obviously you fly long distance, you have many instances of turbulence. Yet at no time during any of that turbulence did I rush the cockpit and say, okay guys, you're not doing it right. Nice try, but let me take over. You clearly don't know what you're doing. No time did I ever do that. Every time I've assured myself that the pilots up front know what they're doing, they know how to get me where they need to get me. And despite all the turbulence along the way, they're gonna get me there and they always have. Here I am, okay? So they always have got me there without injury, thankfully. When we ask God into our lives, ask Jesus to be Lord, ask his Holy Spirit to enter us, we're not just accepting some get out of jail, get out of hell free card. We're actually supposed to be letting God take control. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be handing over and saying, you have a better plan. Please guide me, lead me. We're accepting, accepting he's got a better plan. And no matter how turbulent things may become, he's the best pilot ever. And ultimately, he'll get us to the destination he intends, unharmed. But like the example of the plane, when we take control, when we take control, the inevitable crash occurs. And that's perhaps a morbid picture, but I hope you get my point. When we take control, the inevitable crash occurs. So, here's my challenge. For you and I, do we rush the cockpit? of our lives too often? And what is the answer to that habit we have of stepping in the moment things are going wrong? Trying to kind of correct the pilot thinking, you don't know what you're doing, let me take over. And then things don't work out and we complain to God. I think it's our inability, my inability, to submit to the authority of God, come under the authority of scripture, Submit to the guidance of the Holy Spirit who tells me often, don't do that, Andy. But I'm like, I know better. 
I know what I'm doing. I know your word says that. I know my conscience is kind of pricked at the back to do that, but I know better. And I rush the cockpit and I take control. I believe one of the biggest mistakes, it might be a bit of a harsh term, but misunderstandings of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to think only of signs and wonders, powers and miracles. And I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, I love to see signs and wonders. I love it. I love it. I love it. But actually, when we say to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's about a willingness for him to help and be our guide, to let him drive. A.W. Tozer again said this, and I think he puts it really well. This is the crux of our life. This is the difference between revival and a dead church. This is the difference between a spirit-filled life and a self-filled life. Who is running it? Who's the boss? Whose wisdom is prevailing? Wisdom of God or wisdom of man? That's a, that's a tough read. Revival or a dead church? Spirit-filled life or self-filled life? These are pretty stark contrasts. But here's the good news. There is always good news because of God's heart. He's a good God with a good plan. In the Old Testament, it says Solomon asked God for wisdom and it was given to him. 1 Corinthians 12, read your scriptures, will tell you it's a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life Tozer is talking about is a gift of the Spirit. Solomon asks, God gives it to him. We can ask, the Holy Spirit will give it to us. By God's grace, will give it to us. So let me ask, do you want the wisdom of God, by the Spirit of God, to guide you in his perfect plan so you can feel comfortable? No one, you know, imagine getting in a car and driving off not knowing how you're going to get somewhere and where you're going. You may think it's an adventure. Once in a while, that might be okay. But if that's the only way you ever drive, don't take me anywhere. I want to be driven by someone I know who knows where they're going. And then I can feel relaxed and at peace. And I think for some of us who struggle with that peace, that comes from knowing that God is the driver by his spirit. He can handle every bump, every hairpin turn. You and I are going to need to let go of the wheel, stop wrestling for control. We need to accept that God has a perfect plan for the planet, for the human race, and for us as individuals, and submit to it and let the spirit help be the guide through it. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I don't think that's supposed to mean like straight line. Be interesting to look at that. That feels like, hang on, straight line. But I think it's the sense of you are on the straights of the path. You are following God's plan through life. Makes your paths straight. At the end of this service, we're going to have an opportunity to be prayed for. Fresh filling of the Spirit that brings that peace and that comfort. You can experience more of it, but you need to relinquish control. I need to relinquish control. I'm preaching to myself here, brothers and sisters. It's mirror preaching, as I've said many times before. <sighs> okay, truth. Truth. It's no accident that we put, I decided to flip the last two subjects and put truth last in this series. I want to kind of end here. So this is kind of part of a summary too. This brings the series together for me. Let's go to a scene. An exchange, many of us know it well, between Jesus and Pilate, Pontius Pilate, 
before Pilate ultimately hands Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate asked Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. He says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everything, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him that, that phrase that just rings out through all eternity, what is truth? And then the question goes unanswered. And for me, it's deeply interesting because like everyone, like you too, right? I'm waiting for Jesus to go, wow, let me tell you what truth is and then explain it to him. But no answer like that comes. Except, except Pilate seems to leave it and go out and say, I find no guilt in him. I was, I'll be honest with you. I'm disappointed when I read that. I'm like, oh, come on. Couldn't you just tell me? Can you just give me the answer? The defining phrase of what is truth? And therein lies the rub for me. The flaw in our kind of modern Western way of thinking. We assume that truth is just the polar opposite of a falsehood. We think that something is about fact versus fiction. In order for something to be true, something else has to be a lie. I think this plays massively into the fact that we are so polarized as a people now. I believe this, you believe that, you're wrong, I'm right, There's no, and that's it. It's part of that. So we believe truth is like a statement that's being made. You say that, I say this. That's not how Hebrew thought worked. And we have to read our Bibles in the context of the thinking of the words that we read. The Hebrew word for truth is never stated on its own. It's never in isolation. It's connected with something. It's not about this is true and that's not true. It's about this is true and then because this happens as a result. If something is experienced, something is demonstrated, like true concern. These things are the truths we're talking about. They're things that can only be made true by experiencing that concern. It is the evidential truth of something, not just words. So the Bible is much less about what you say, much more about what you do when we talk about truth. So this should now make more sense. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Think about those three things together. The way, the truth, and the life. It's not way is experienced. Life is experienced. Truth in the middle of that isn't, and now here's some facts. It's, this is all lived out, the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the embodiment of all this. He's the proof. He's the evidence. He's the confirmation. He's the reliable source we turn to and look to for what it means. Because we can read God is merciful and kind, and our thoughts maybe want to argue with that sometimes. Without opening a huge can of worms, we could have a great discussion about what it means with all the suffering in the world. I'm not going to go there. That kind of links a bit into the wisdom piece before. Maybe one day we can have a session on that. But look at Christ. Look at Christ. He comes into the broken world, into the suffering, into the mess. Happy Christmas. And he lives a life true to the nature of God. He loves in the mess. He cares in the mess. He heals in the mess. He protects in the mess. He looks after the poor and the oppressed. He challenges the religious and the self-righteous. He values every person, puts that the value before their failing slow to anger, rich in mercy. Even those who crucified him, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Nothing Jesus did was against the nature of God. Everything he did was right, perfect, holy and righteous. Prove me wrong. We struggle to stay true. 
we do. To live out truth, human nature seems to be we're able to talk up a good fight, but we do struggle with the execution. I don't want to go into this too much, but one of the biggest issues I have with politics, like I said, I don't want to go into this too much, is how much faith we put in what people say only to be disappointed by what they do. And let's not talk about parties or individual leaders. A lot is said, but often there is a failure to deliver. And I bet some of you are ranting at the screen now, go on, Andy, go with the politics. Yep, you're right. Politicians, kick them out, vote them out. Get rid of them, they're liars. Here's a sobering moment for me and you. What about us as followers of Christ? What about me as a follower of Christ? Because you see, as Christians, and I think a lot of this comes out of the worship music that we listen to these days, and I'm, as you know, a lover of worship music, we know what to say. We know how to sound Christian. But actually, that can be very hollow if we don't live it out. And in reality, that can then upend the gospel. Ah, you say this, but you do that. Those two things don't match up. I'm not saying that you're a fake Christian just because of these things. But what I want to talk about is aligning to God's truth. Biblical truth is so little about what we say versus how we actually live it all out. My, uh, my wife and Hannah Abraham and many others love Hamilton, yeah? It's a musical, by the way, about the American Constitution. What a weird thing to do a musical about. Um, but it's got, a, it's got the politic, political system of America as it evolves. And there's a conversation between Alexander Burr, sorry, um, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, one of the scenes. And he asks him what, it, what you need to do to get on as a politician. And he says, talk less, smile more. And then don't let people know what you're against or what you're for. You want to get ahead, fools who rush their mouths off wind up dead. I want to say this compared to that. Talk less, brothers and sisters. Do more. Let people see what you're against and what you're for. If we want to get ahead, stop running our mouths off and live it instead. Jesus is a reference point because he was fully man yet fully God. He embodied what happens when you can be a true child of God in this frame. He walked among us. And here's the beauty of Jesus Christ as a model. What he did, he said these words, greater things than me you will say. No, he didn't. He said greater things than me you will do. And we again jump to, oh, healings, do you mean? No, living it out is the offer to you and to me. We can model these nine characteristics of God plus truth, obviously, that we've been talking about. We can demonstrate what it means to be loving, holy, good, just, merciful, gracious, faithful, patient, and wise. We are able to be true to demonstrate a transformation that has taken place and can be offered to anyone who wishes to follow Christ. How? With help. John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And I would suggest you read all of John 16 if you want to hear about what truth is and how it contrasts to the ways of the world, contrasts to sin, and that the believer needs to live a life pursuing righteousness and to glorify God. The spirit of truth testifies about God. It challenges the way we want to live because it will demonstrate the truth of God and what's happened in our lives. The Father knew we were going to struggle. This would not be easy. 
And he says the, the Holy Spirit is described as a helper and a guide. The Spirit of truth will guide us, will guide you and me. If we were able to grade ourselves, if I was able to grade myself, my dear friends, if I was to take those nine plus the truth attributes of God or characteristics of God, and I was to say I'm going to grade myself on one to a hundred, I know there would be many areas where I'm thinking I could do a lot more there. Are we supposed to just grit in and try to say, well, I'm just going to kind of, kind of push it? No, Holy Spirit says we'll help you. Holy Spirit will help. We just need to admit that we do need help in being able to say that I can believe things to be true, I can speak things to be true, but let me demonstrate that truth in my life and glorify God. And yes, there is joy that comes when we evidence these things. There is joy that comes when we can peacefully and happily demonstrate love, goodness, holiness, mercy. Our faith is then not just words, regurgitated worship lyrics, it becomes true. Amen? Becomes true. Let us take full, full advantage of what's on offer. Next week, we're going to wrap up this series. I hope today has been helpful to you to realize what it means to be wise and true when you compare it to the, these are characteristics of God we're trying to reflect in our lives. I want to pray by the Holy Spirit today. You were convicted. I hope no one felt condemned by what I shared, but convicted. Mm-hmm.